Good evening to you and how you be. William Haynes here. You are there at seven o'clock on this Monday night or whenever you may be listening to this. I am your host, William Haynes. I am joined by my co-host, Jackson Bakich. We have Amanda Golson, Ethan Salzberg, and you are listening to Tomahawk Talk on WVFS, Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. And of course, a reminder that the opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk may not reflect that of WVFS Tallahassee. You're either listening to this on 89.7 FM, uh, terrestrially in Tallahassee on the radio or as a podcast. During this summer stretch, we're doing it a little bit differently. This will be released as a podcast probably sometime Saturday afternoon, so you'll get a chance to listen to it before the baseball team takes on Auburn in the next stage uh, um, of their regional. So if you're listening to this maybe on Monday for uh, future weeks, you can catch this a little bit in advance at least during this summer stage before we get too deeper into it i also do want to give out a couple of thanks to brett rutherford who hosted tomahawk talk last week in the studio had ryan kelly and aria masudi on and had some great conversations about the softball uh, collapse the baseball team headed into the regional and all of that and uh, speaking of which i won't hide away from it i know the last show that we did uh, the zoom show uh, we did, I did, I did kind of jinx the softball team. So again, apologies for that. Their season is over, but we do still have uh, some baseball to discuss. So without further ado, introducing our panel today, we'll start off with you, Jackson Bakich. It's been a couple of weeks, the co-host of Tomahawk Talk. How have you been? I've been solid, you know, just been working around and writing stories and you know, uh, we were supposed to get some rain here in Lake County there because, you know, that that big kind of tropical storm, tropical depression that was supposed to come through. And uh, we haven't gotten a drop here. So uh, it's been nice to kind of be dry, even though we have a saying in Lake County, you know, we, we can always use the rain. But, uh, you know, it's 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 been quite nice. It's been very relaxing this summer. I'll say that a good summer in Lake County can never go wrong with that. Next up, we have uh, Amanda Golson. She's the sports chief anchor here, and uh, she was on the show a, a few weeks ago, the infamous Coco for Coco hosts a show with Sebastian and Jack on it. So, Amanda, it's been a little while. Uh, how have you been? I'm good. I'm actually still in Tallahassee doing some summer classes. Um, so it's been it's kind of sad, actually. There's not a whole lot of people around, but I've... Uh, been uh i've been taking advantage of the quiet time until i go back home in a two weeks or so but uh i've missed being here uh i miss being on the show with you guys although jack and sebastian and i were able to go in and do that one show as well which was a lot of fun but i'm glad that we can you know be together virtually to keep doing this how has it been in, in Tallahassee during the summer stretch? I, I have not been there over the summer. Is it like kind of dead? Is there not a lot of people hanging out there these days? It's it's pretty dead. Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't been doing a whole lot, so I haven't, you know, been around as much. But it's there's you wouldn't really think this is a college campus. There's not a whole lot of people just 
walking around like usual. Um, just kind of sad, but it's it's given a given me a new perspective on Tallahassee. I think. If only uh, the baseball team could have captured that regional, could have given the city a, a, a little bit of juice for an extra a couple of you weeks. Be or up so. there, right, William? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and finally, we have Ethan Salzberg. Ethan, it's been a while since we've talked to you, but you've been on the show a handful of times, and we're really excited uh, to have you back. And uh, how's your summer been to this point? Definitely. Well, I mean, thank you guys for having me back on. I'm super excited. And I, you know, I've been doing good. You know, it's just the weather down here in Jacksonville has been pretty solid, not too much rain overall. So I've been at the beach, getting my money up, working so I can have enough uh, money for next year. So everything's been so far so good down here in Jacksonville. Sounds good. Sounds good. Do you have uh, an, an NBA rooting allegiance? I know we have a large heat conglomerate. Have you had uh, a horse in the race here the last uh, um, few weeks? You know, I kind of this – I'm not a big Boston sports guy. I don't really have a favorite NBA team, so I just kind of choose series to series. But, you know, I can say I've definitely been cheering against the Celtics. I, I think a lot of people uh, can agree with that one. So with all the introductions out of the way, we'll, we'll head into kind of the, the main attraction of this week's show, which uh, would be the FSU baseball team. Now, last week, I know Brett and the crew kind of got into it, but if you missed that show where you just need uh, a refresher – uh, Florida State baseball, they did not uh, capture the host spot for a regional. In fact, they were one of the last four teams even selected into the tournament at all. I mean, NC State was another team that got snubbed all the way out of the tournament. So things could have been worse, but not as great uh, as the Knowles were hoping after the ACC tournament. I believe they finished, I think, eighth or ninth final in the conference. Uh, so they had, uh, even though they were playing a little bit better, the wins weren't necessarily coming their way. So they ended up getting selected to the third seed uh, in the Auburn regional. Auburn is the 14th out of the 16 overall seeds. So pretty much at the bottom uh, of the country, uh, as far as RPI rankings go, number 48, UCLA, number 14, Auburn and Southeastern Louisiana, who to my eye were not even on uh, the RPI and Auburn gave them uh, a pretty good beating the other day. So they head into this regional and, um, they're playing UCLA in the first game. It was Friday uh, in the afternoon, the first game, I think, of the entire tournament against uh, UCLA. And they got a 5-3 to three win. Maybe not as we maybe expected things would go, um, but they did enough, and uh, they, they played well enough to get that first win, which is so crucial in a double elimination format uh, that they're playing in. Uh, they were leading 3 nothing after about four and a half innings. They had uh, a man at second base in the first and drove him in with a single then they had a two-run triple from Jordan Carrion, who stayed hot in the fifth inning, drove in Vincent and Tyler Martin. So they were cruising there for a little while. Then Parker Messick, who was pitching uh, in that opening game, gave up two runs in the fifth to make it three to two Knowles. UCLA brought it to a one-run game uh, in the eighth, scoring on a wild pitch. Some uh, kind of sloppy defense for the Knowles in this one. And Alex Terrell hit a home run in the ninth inning to make it a five uh, to three final. So Parker Messick only went five innings, gave up a couple of runs, maybe not what we were expecting. The Knowles had to burn uh, some of their really high leverage relievers as well. But guys, it was enough, at least against UCLA, to get the job done. Yeah, and, and what we saw from this Florida State team, in my opinion, uh, was just some selfless baseball. Um, we see a few hits to the right side. We see a few sacrifice flies that, that didn't necessarily always result in runs, you know, that sacrifice fly that was reviewed there. I think it was, what, the sixth inning, somewhere in the middle of the game. Uh, 
But we saw a team, in my opinion, that was was ready for the playoffs, a, a team that was was ready uh, to do what it takes to, to get runs across the board and not worrying about individual statistics. I liked what I saw yesterday, and I think they'll win the regional. Well, that is uh, certainly a, a some high praise for them. Um, looking at um, some some other notes for this game, Jaime Ferrer had a couple of doubles. His he, his uh, hit streak is now to eight games. He's gotten on base in eleven consecutive games. Talking more about Jaime Ferrer, the true freshman. His sixty eight hits this season are the most uh, for a freshman since twenty sixteen when Cal Rally had sixty nine hits in that year. Uh, Ferrer also leads. The Knowles in doubles as of right now, his 322 batting average is best on the team. Uh, and he also leads the team in multi-hit games with 17. He was the only Knoll in the lineup to have multiple hits in the game against UCLA. Uh, Jordan Carrion, the transfer from Florida, his hit streak is now to 12 games. So that, of course, leads the team as far as active hitting streaks. Uh, Florida State, they have won 11 of their last 13 games versus top 25 ranked opponents. UCLA, I think, was was somewhere in the low 20s uh, coming into the game. And also, I know this is something that we've talked quite a bit about. Um, this was the first road victory of the year for Parker Messick. So um, a guy that I, when we see him uh, at Dick Hauser Stadium, he's terrific. He's lights out um, himself as well as the, the team has, has struggled on the road. Um, but they do get the, that victory in Auburn. There was some talk. Uh, Mike Martin Jr., the, the head coach, was saying after the game that there was a large amount of fans that traveled to the game, and that maybe played a role in kind of feeling at home uh, in Auburn, Alabama. But, I mean, it's it's crucial. We'll, we'll talk about this because if they had lost that game, they would have gone into the loser's bracket, and they were one win or one loss rather away for their season uh, being on the line. But they were able to uh, get the job done, and they'll play Auburn uh, coming up here shortly. So I just want to throw this out here um, to you guys. Was there any more thoughts that you guys saw in that UCLA game that, that stood out to you? Um, I, would, I wanted to say, um, I think starting aggressive with our bats was definitely a key to this game. There's been games where, you know, we've started off slow, which is, you know, the game drags on and there's no sense of urgency, but I think starting off aggressive with the bats definitely played in our favor and I also just think there was an overall, like being one of the last teams picked for this, um, I think there's just an overall sense of urgency. Like the team felt like they needed to prove themselves, you know, that they did deserve to be here. And, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of good things. And then there was a lot of bad things in this game, but I think that um, the good outweighed the bad and they proved themselves to be a team worthy to be in the playoffs. Um, so I, I was I was happy with how they played, but there's still I mean there's always things to improve. But I'm I'm excited for the game tonight. I think that's really going to test our team. Yeah, I was kind of like just looking at yesterday's game. It was great that you know you get off to a hot, a hot start, especially in an environment that isn't your own, and you know in a situation where it's must win games. And I think that that's a big advantage. But one thing I think going in, into tonight's game, you're playing at Auburn, you're playing Auburn, you play underneath the lights, you know, big time game. I think that it's not only important to get out early, but it's important to stay consistent throughout the middle innings. Because you see in a lot of our recent games towards the later part of the season, we go on streaks where we have 10 consecutive outs and you just can't do that in playoff baseball. You're just not going to go far and be successful. I think if we can get in there and eliminate some errors and eliminate, 
you know, some of those tiny little things, if we tie those pieces together, that'll be a big um, part in our success. So, And with that uh, headed into Saturday night, the Knolls in the winner's bracket, and they'll be taking on the Auburn Tigers who are coming off an absolute dismantling of Southeastern Louisiana, the fourth seed uh, in this Auburn regional. The Tigers had a 19 to seven win in their first game. They had an eight run first and booted the starter uh, out of the game. Looking at kind of a scouting report of this game, the Tigers, they've got a fresh bullpen uh, because their starter went deep and they didn't have to use any of their high leverage guys in a blowout uh, and they'll be pitching uh, a really good right-hander sinker baller, Joseph Gonzalez. They call him Gonzo this year. He is six and two with a 274 earned run average. He threw a complete game against Vanderbilt this year. He routinely works into the seventh inning. So a guy that's uh, you can count on, as I said, with relying on the sinkers gets a lot of ground balls. So Florida state is employing a strategy where they're trying to put the ball in play. Uh, that'll allow the Auburn uh, defense, which has been very efficient uh, to, to go to work. As a, uh, they've got one of the highest defensive efficiency rates in the country and the Auburn lineup themselves, they put the ball in play a ton and a Florida state defense. That's been uh, not very good. They had a couple of errors uh, in the game against UCLA. They had a ton of errors down the stretch. So this is not a good lineup uh, or a good matchup for Florida state against a team that, that's going to test uh, their defense quite a bit. And for the Seminole side of things with Messick going in game one, it'll be Bryce Hubbard, who arguably right now is the best pitcher the Knolls have going. He's eight and two uh, this season with a 318 ERA, 94 strikeouts to only 18 walks and just under 74 innings of work. So very dependable. He leads the team and wins. Um, I, there was a, an article on a, an Auburn blog that kind of it's always interesting to see how other people uh, view your team. And they described Hubbard as a guy with a funky delivery um, that is it just looks strange and not something you see all the time. So uh, could potentially a challenge a, an unfamiliar foe. There was a lot of talk on last week's show about um, you're finally starting to play teams that aren't in the ACC that you don't play all the time that maybe don't know your guys. So this is a good chance maybe for Hubbard. And uh, with the pitching, it's going to be a little tough if Bryce can't go deep into the game. They burned Wyatt Crowell for a couple innings, about 50 pitches, and threw Scalero and Hare in that game as well. And now I'll throw it out to you guys. Uh, this is an incredibly important game. If they can win this one, they'll be one win away from the Super Regional. So what do they need to do uh, to get past the Auburn Tigers? Well, first of all, I want to rebut uh, I, what you said about him being the best pitcher on staff, I think statistically, yes. I mean, you look at the statistics, Hubbard is the best pitcher on staff. But you got to look at a lot of the games um, that Messick has pitched in. Uh, he's he's gone one or two in it, or excuse me, uh, he's only given up one or two runs and gotten the loss uh, a couple times. So uh, when it comes to wins and losses, he's right there with them. I think he's I, I I think Hubbard has done very very well, obviously, uh, but. Uh, we can talk about it some other time, but but best pitcher on staff, they're they're, they're definitely a great one-two punch, no matter what way you put it. But I think tonight, what Florida State needs to do, uh, I think they need to see a lot of pitches. You know, you have you have a guy that 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 gets a lot of ground balls. You have a guy that, like you said, is consistent. The guy that that goes into games deep. You have to see a lot of pitches. Maybe draw some more walks, get him deeper into the game, get him more tired. And then when, when the lineup is going well and, and and they're they're scoring a lot of runs, that is a big part of what they do. They are working walks. 
and forcing pitchers to work really hard. If you can make Gonzo go maybe 20, 25 pitches in the opening inning and set yourself up well. Uh, for Auburn, their bullpen is in great shape as opposed to what FSU um, has going. So that that to me is really the main thing is, is there's a lot of pressure on Bryce to pitch well because you're not going to have Crowell, who's been your best reliever all year. And even Scalero and Hare, who pitched uh, on Friday, they were both not super great. Scalero had a couple of runners on, including the tying run at second base. So probably less effective on a back-to-back even than they were um, on Friday. So their, their work is cut out for them. Auburn is about a top 15 team, depending on where you look this season. They had a sweep against LSU. That was kind of the high point. Um, of their season obviously they're hosting the regional so they're they're viewed as the favorite um, but I think when Florida State's right that they can go on a roll if you want to go bigger picture I mean look at all these kind of upperclassmen that they have on their team Alex Terrell um, probably in his last year he's only hitting 220 but he leads the team in home runs he had one on Friday I think the team maybe goes as far as he can can hit Uh, they've got guys like Logan Lacey and 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 uh, Roberts and and those kind of guys and it's where, where do you what do you guys think of this team right now because going into the year it was a lot of veteran leadership a lot of established guys but as we've gone on it's been the younger guys you know true freshmen Tibbs and Ferrer and all these guys so is this maybe the youth movement or do you guys maybe expect some of the the older guys to to turn it around a little bit yeah I mean personally I think the older guys are going to help with the experience and some of the small mental aspects of the game that are going to help the younger guys perform better. Because at the end of the day, what I think is going to be really key to our postseason success is not only our starters doing longer in the game, but making sure that we are like mentally sharp and that those little things in between the bigger picture kind of stay tighter together. Because I think, you know, if you look at the game tonight, not only do we need Hubbard to go well, but then we do have Montgomery who I saw is, um, I think, available tonight. And then this really making sure that our bats just stay alive and just even putting it in play because putting it in play gives that other team an opportunity to mess up. And I think when you just start getting in a rhythm and you play together as a team and all that kind of positive energy just feeds together, I think that kind of can take maybe that younger guy who's struggling or in a hole or made an error in the game when that older guy, you know, gets ahead and picks him up, you know, that kind of team aspect of it, I think – be really important for the um, inexperienced guys. And the mojo is good right now. I mean, spirits are high. You saw the dugout get really excited in yesterday's game. So if you, if it is a team that's kind of dominated by, by the young bucks and when you catch a wave, they can ride it. Um, that, that'll that be a big thing uh, for sure. Yeah. I want to say adding on to what Ethan was saying about, you know, playing as a team, you know, Florida state's coming into this game as the underdog in a way we're playing or they're playing Auburn in their home field, which is already a disadvantage, especially for Florida state's away game, you know, reputation. Um, I've personally, I've seen, I think a bunch of our senior leaders have been in slumps recently, maybe like Logan Lacey, Reese Albert, Alex Charles inconsistent. And you've got these younger guys that are really stepping up. I think, for this game, Florida State just needs to, like Ethan was saying, play as a team, trust each other, and, um, you know, really – because you can learn a lot from, you know, these older guys who have more experience in these higher-level games that mean a lot. 
um, that these younger guys just haven't played in yet. So I think really just trusting your team, not trying to be selfish or anything, trusting each other, playing as a team is really what's going to, it's really what Florida State needs to um, have a shot at winning this game tonight. FSU is six and thirteen on the road this season. Amanda, you make make a great point that it's this is not a game like against UCLA where there's not very many people in the ballpark. This is the Auburn fans are going to be showing out in droves, and for a team that's faltered in big road environments, that's maybe the biggest test of the whole thing, and maybe what makes the matchup against Auburn the most difficult. Um, of all. So uh, you look at contingencies. If Florida State is able to win this game in advance, as I said earlier, there'll be one win away from the Super Regional. And so I imagine UCLA, who is is playing kind of right after this maybe goes out, I imagine they'll beat Southeastern Louisiana and kick them out. So then it'll be um, whoever beats, uh, whoever wins in that matchup of Auburn and UCLA will advance to play Florida state another couple of times. If FSU can win today. Now, if the Knolls lose, they'll likely be playing UCLA again with their season on the line. And if they win that they'll have to be to uh, win a couple of games in a row against Auburn. So that's of course the, mo- the much more difficult uh, scenario. So th- that they-, they did themselves a big favor winning on Friday, but they're going to need a- another big one tonight against Auburn. One more quick FSU hit. This isn't baseball, but um, John Butler for the basketball team listed as a Ford, um, nearly seven feet tall, a real uh, skinny guy, but he was one of their more dependable three-point shooters. Um, I I think just on paper, a really great guy to have on the roster. And he has announced that he's going to be entering the NBA draft. So his time at FSU is done. And this came to a surprise to a lot of people, myself included. And I wanted to hear what you guys had to say about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely hurts. As you saw last year, we were a very, very young team. And then obviously we were decimated by injuries. So um, I think that that kind of second year experience would definitely hurt us. However, I think we have um, some good perimeter shooters coming in that transfer from UCF is um, Darren Green. I think his name is. I know that he is phenomenal from beyond the arc. So that we know in terms of, points can kind of even that out a little bit so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out definitely not expected move but I think that you know we, we may not um be as hurt as some people may think yeah I think uh if, if you had to say out of the two would you rather have kept Matthew Cleveland or John Butler I think Cleveland was was more likely to go to the draft but you end up keeping him instead so maybe you look at it through that way well you're able to keep him so that will do it for the first half of our FSU-laden show coming up after the break, we have some NBA basketball, some big finals talk after the Celtics win game one. Also, some hockey talk as the playoffs are uh, raging in full form there as well. So make sure to stick around. You're listening to Tomahawk Talk. A great song to start half number two. Jackson, I know you sent that one to me. There was a great video that came out, I think, about a month ago. Edwin Diaz, the closer of the New York Mets, uses that as his uh, walkout song. So strikes fear into the hearts of opposing batters and will start us off uh, for half number two of the show this week. And 
a really big story, and it is uh, the NBA Finals. We'll start with the conference finals first, though, because uh, it's been a couple of weeks on this show since we've uh, talked some basketball. Uh, the Western Conference, not nearly as interesting. It was the Warriors in five games over the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, Luka Doncic had a couple of nice games uh, towards down the stretch of that series, but not nearly enough uh, to get it done. And it seemed like it was kind of in the writing for Dallas. They barely got out of round one. Uh, I, we will never know how they beat the Phoenix Suns in game seven with how drastically the Suns collapsed. And so they get all the way to the conference finals, but not nearly enough to get past the Warriors. And then on the Eastern Conference side, it was the Celtics over the Heat in seven games. The Celtics going on the road for game seven in a game that um, <laughs> very interesting. There was a call down the stretch at the very end that a lot of people were maybe not so happy about, depending on where your interests, uh, rooting interests lie. Um, and so, uh, to you guys is what, what were your thoughts watching those conference finals? Um, well, first of all, we talk about the West. I, I remember we were still in studio. Um, this was probably week for the, before the, Playoffs started. I was talking about Luka Doncic, and I said, you know, he's been to the playoffs twice. He's failed to get out of the first round both times. Um, obviously, we know he's a great, great player, but at one point, do we decide to be critical of him? And uh, not that he necessarily proved me wrong, because I didn't necessarily, uh, I wasn't starting to be critical of him yet, uh, but he definitely show that he is one of the best players in the league and he can, he can be the number one option on, a, on an NBA basketball team. But I think what this, what that series proved is that he needs another option. He needs another, a guy uh, that can give you that 20, 25 a night that can be that reliable star game in and game out. So, uh, you know, props to Luka Doncic and, and the season he had, um, but I think he needs. I think he needs one more guy if they're if the Mavericks are going to win another championship. Yeah, kind of to add on that, um, you know, the saying "there's no I in team." You know, there's only so far Luca could take his team up against this core Warriors team, who you know has this system in play already that they they can you know they fit together so perfectly, and they they've proven that. So I think it was. It was a good matchup, um, but, you know, like you said, there's only so much Luca can do by himself. You know, he needs he needs somebody else to help him, you know, so maybe next year we'll see if anything changes. But um, that's also, yeah, I just want to add on that. I do wonder kind of where Dallas does go from here, I, even dating back to, to round one. They, the Mavs just looked like a slow team. Doncic is not very good defensively. He was getting picked on a lot in, in the last couple of games of that series. And as Jackson said, they don't have another superstar that can go out and shoot a bunch. And this is uh, a Western Conference now that, that looks really, really good. You've got Golden State at the top. I think Phoenix will be back at least for, for one more run. You've got Memphis. Um, even Minnesota, if they, if they're going to build back off of, of what they were able to do last year. So it's like, they're, they're kind of stuck in the middle of the pack. I think they, they overperformed, uh, maybe than, than people thought. So I just, I wonder, are they going to be back next year? Are they just a team that, that kind of fades into mediocrity? I don't know. It kind yeah. of reminds me of, 
uh, Joe Burrow and the Bengals. Um, you have that one star in Burrow. Their team is not necessarily completely formed yet. Uh, and they, they made it all the way to, this, to a place, you know, no one expected them to. And so who knows where they will they get back to right, right where they left off or will they, like you said, kind of fade back into mediocrity. Um, who knows? Do you have something there, Ethan? Yeah, I was just going to kind of say, I think that they pretty much killed it, like, middle of the pass. They just need that one extra guy for for uh, Luca to kind of, you know, go by. But I was kind of thinking of um, the Eastern Conference series and just going from there, um, how, like, much of a battle that was kind of between the Heat and the Celtics. And I think that could maybe bring up some um, interesting points for the finals, just with how they dealt with, the, um, some of the Heat's explosive offense at times, but then yet yeah, was able to shut them down from game to game. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's move to the Eastern Conference. And as I said, it was Boston in seven games. Miami, where they were the one seed, they they had a great regular season. They had the, the kind of the home court advantage going into the playoffs. And uh, most people's criticism of them was they didn't really have the firepower. They didn't have a guy down the stretch that was going to go down and get them the buckets they needed. Uh, Jason Tatum played a couple of game sevens in this year's playoffs alone and, and, and did enough to get them through. Um, so maybe we'll start with Miami first. I mean, Jimmy Butler was the guy. They also had some, some big presence in, in the paint with, with Bam and, and company. But uh, what do you guys think was, was what did them in and that they weren't able to advance uh, to the finals? Yeah, I kind of, I just think that honestly, at the end of the day, I think that he played a great series. Right? I think that hero being out was just a big significant. Strew stepped up and played a great series. Don't get me wrong, but still, hero is is a significantly better player. I think ultimately, when it came down to it, that's kind of what they were missing. See, that's funny because I've heard the opposite side. People have saying that the heat played better with hero out because they think he's too much of a turnover machine. So, you know, it goes, I guess it really depends on the game, but um, you know, like you said, Struess did Struess stepped up, um, you know, like William was saying, you got Bam putting up numbers, um, Jimmy doing what he does best. Uh, yeah. I was, I was surprised by that series. I'm not going to lie. Um, but you know, the Celtics, proved to be the better team so and you know they already took game one so this this last series is going to be it's going to be really interesting what is it about this the Celtics team that, that that makes them so special because a lot of guys we've seen on this team in years past including Horford when he was with the Celtics the first time but it seems I don't know someone sprinkled some pixie dust on, on the the TD garden or, or what but this team is playing like like they haven't before. Marcus Smart uh, winning the Defensive Player of the Year. Jalen Brown is a great offensive weapon. And now Tatum is viewed really as a superstar uh, top against anybody in the league. Is there anything different that they're doing? I know they're shooting the three ball incredibly well. I know there was a coaching change with Brad Stevens transitioning to the front office. Um, but but what is it that that's the X factor for this team compared to what we've seen in years past? It's got to be their defense. Um, we have not seen, in my opinion, we have not seen a, a basketball team um, perform this well defensively 
since, I don't know. I mean, the game has changed so much and points per game has gone through the roof. Um, it used to be, I'd say kind of, <laughs> this is how I view basketball. Uh, when Dwight left Orlando, that's when the NBA started. Not that he had any factor in this, but it's just kind of the timeline. So it's from 2012, 2013. This is when the three balls started to become so huge. Um, so when that happened, when, you know, when the three balls started to become so huge, uh, before that point, to give up more than 100 points in the game was considered a bad defensive performance. And now if you just don't give up, uh, like if your points per game average in terms of defense is around 102, 103, you have a stellar defense in the NBA. So um, when we, when you compare those numbers to maybe, you know, decades past, you'd say, oh, they're a terrible defensive team. But since we're, we've been in this new era of basketball, I have not seen a team this well-rounded defensively. And if, when you watch that fourth quarter uh, in game one of the finals, you see, uh, their defense turned into offense. They had a lot of fast break points, a lot of two on twos, a lot of two on ones, um, a lot of open threes. And um, like their, their defense led into their offense. If they don't have a good defense, I don't think they score 40 points in that quarter. Um, so that's gotta be for me. You have, you have players on that defensive side that, that can guard one through four. And then you have your, your big men that can guard three through five. Uh, I have been very high on the Celtics team. I didn't think they were going to win game one, but I, I think they're going to win the series. And uh, they're just, they're, they're the most well-rounded team I've seen in a long, long time. Yeah. And like you mentioned their defense and obviously their defense, the vocal point of their team. I think though, you know, they came into that third quarter down so many points. And then the, the fact they went on that run and scored 40 points in a quarter can they repeat that in the next how many games they play? You know, that's kind of the question I ask myself. Like, don't get me wrong, this is a great squad. I think they will be – every game will be close. But how well can they shoot that three ball and how well can they play in that fourth quarter down the stretch? You know, I think that's kind of – I think that third and fourth quarter will determine who wins the series. What do, you, what do you think it is about this Boston defense that's made them so successful? Is it maybe a general team speed? I know they play a lot of uh, tough, sticky man-to-man uh, -man, uh, in a lot of situations. But it's, I mean, when you say in the, you know, in the playoffs, whatever, you got to play good defense, that can be taken a lot of different ways. What is it about what Boston does, like, in particular that has been different maybe from what other teams are able to do? They hustle. Um they're long. I mean, Jalen Brown is, forgive me, I don't have his height number uh, as I'll look it up now, but uh, they're all pretty long. Um, Jason Tatum, oh, me and Jalen Brown share a birthday. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they have him listed at 6'6, six, six, and you know, he's, he's, a, he's a, you know, a two or a three. So when you have five players on the court that, you know, can guard all the way up to the four just because of their length and their size and their speed. Uh, and also they hustle, like I said, they hustle and they're just good defensively. You, being a good defender, they always say, you know, it's just hustle. It's just, it's just this, it's just that. Like it is a skill. It's not, it's not just hustle. It's not just 
trying. Uh, being a good defender takes skill, especially now in the NBA where you have to uh, be able to defend without fouling. So um, that's it for me. It's just they're 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 good. They're, they're skillful at defending. Yeah, kind of adding on to what you were saying, I think really their versatility is what has proven them to be, you know, this defensive team. They, I think they really can figure teams out, like, you know, being down pretty much the whole game and then being down by so much, they, they really figured out the Warriors. They figured out what needed to be done and it worked, you know, they went on this huge run, the fourth quarter Celtics went, it was 40 to 16 points, like in the fourth quarter, which is just crazy. Um, I just think their ability to really lock down and figure out what needs to be done for different teams is what sets them apart and what makes them this, you know, defensive spectacle and why they've been so successful um, the past. You see in sports a lot of times, especially in today's age with the analytics and the the look at numbers, how things maybe shift to an extreme in basketball it seems over the last few years, it's become get a team that can score 140 points, shoot the lights out from three. It doesn't really matter if they play defense because they're going to outscore anyone they play. There's those infamous clips of James Harden, like not even guarding anyone on defense simply because he didn't really have to. And it always, the pendulum always swings back the other way. And I think uh, the Miami Heat are a team that they play great team defense, uh, and, and that was a great part of their success. You don't necessarily need a superstar to do that. Uh, if the Celtics can can get over this hump and actually beat the Warriors for the finals, I think this will be um, kind of an example of, of them showing in the NBA. If you can commit to defense and play it really well, this is the new way to win um, because guarding the three ball is, is a hard thing to do, and uh, they didn't do it as much early in game one, but it seemed maybe down the stretch – uh, and I mean, let's be honest, Golden State even had some some wide open misses there as well. But you got to take got to take it where you can get them. Let's dig a little deeper now into what we saw on game one on Thursday night. It was 120 uh, to 108 in favor of Boston. So they take really what's a shocker on the road in game one. They steal home court and set themselves up tremendously. Uh, for the rest of the series, this was a game of a lot of swings each way. Each quarter really was a different story. Um, Golden State had a plus four uh, margin in the first quarter. Then the Celtics had a plus six in the second. Golden State with a plus 14 in the third quarter. And then it was Boston with a plus 24 margin in the fourth quarter. Uh, in this year's playoffs, um, going into the finals, Golden State had been outscored by a total of seven points of the first three quarters. Uh, in the fourth quarter, leading into the finals, they had a plus 94 margin in the fourth quarter, and they got the brakes beaten off of them by Boston uh, late in this one. Steph Curry got really hot at the beginning of the game. He had 18 points before um, the, the first quarter was even done. He was like uh, on, on pace to set you know three-point records for finals and all this stuff. Um, but Boston was able to hang around. They never got too low. It seemed like Golden State was in control for most of the first half, and then Boston kind of came screaming in late. Um, so, so let's let's talk about it. I mean, this is a huge win for Boston. And um, what was it that what did Golden State not do down the stretch, maybe uh, to close out that game? Well, I think, sorry, uh, go ahead. Uh, I don't know. 
I think that they just ultimately they just they lacked a little bit of defense. And obviously, in the fourth quarter, I mean, if you put up forty points, like they, there's something missing there. And I think this their inability to make some clutch shots, you know, because it, it didn't get out of reach until the final few minutes, and there was multiple shots where they could have made it, and it would have been a possession game, or they would have been up or down. But they ultimately couldn't make the shot when they needed to make it. I think that kind of screwed them over in the end. Jackson, yeah, that's an interesting point. Well, I want to, um, I'll go to eat. I'll talk about Ethan's point, and I'll go back to your point, William. Uh, but Ethan, that is a good point. Uh, one word we have never really attributed to, to Steph Curry is clutch, um, which I think is an interesting standpoint. Him, and he's, you know, undoubtedly the greatest shooter ever. Uh, but I, I, you know, when you look at when Steph Curry needs to make shots uh, late in the fourth quarter, I'm talking about last two minutes of a game, we kind of see him trying to play hero ball and chuck shots up. Um, so I think that's interesting just as a thing in sports, uh, <laughs> for lack of better words. But kind of back to what you were saying, or um, William, about um, kind of this lack of def- defense or this lack of defensive trend in, in basketball. Uh, I, I think all of the teams that have won – in the past six, seven years in the NBA, they've all been good defensive teams or at least not bad defensive teams. Um, And that's why I think it's my, you know, that's why James Harden um, when he was with the Rockets and he was doing 100%, almost 100% ISO ball is what it felt like. uh, He's not playing good defense. That's why teams like the Nets um, who have uh, people like James Harden on their team where defense is not, you know, where their defense is not great. It's not really even good. It's not, it's bad, um, honestly. Uh, that's why they don't win the whole thing. And they might win a lot of games in the regular season, but when you have to play the same team and beat them four times uh, out of seven, uh, defense becomes the common denominator. And, you know, we look at when the Warriors won three, uh, when they've won their three finals. Uh, they play pretty well defensively, but they're just so good offensively that I think it overshadows their defense. And and what's interesting about Golden State is this is a team that looks a lot different since, as you mentioned, Jackson, that when they won those three finals, Kevin Durant is no longer there. It, it seems kind of funny to say this, but it's they're not as reliant on star power maybe as they were back then. They've still got the splash bros in the main core, but it's it, guys like Jordan Poole um, and, and even Iguodala came back and in game Wiggins. one. I think they have the most talented roster on the NBA offensively um, by far. I don't really think – I mean, when you have three all-stars in Draymond Green – Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. And then you get Jordan Poole, who's been a great asset for them. And you get the former number one pick, Andrew Wiggins. Uh, and Andre Iguodala, who, who has been a veteran for what feels like five years now. Um, <clears throat> I think they are extremely uh, talented. And I think, like I said, best roster in the NBA by far. It was big for Golden State to get Clay Thompson back. He missed. Um, 
like two and a half seasons, essentially. It was that that NBA Finals against the Raptors was the last time he played. It was a ruptured or it was a torn ACL initially and then the ruptured Achilles during the rehab. He was finally able to get back. Um, I mean, even before Clay Thompson had played this year, they they started off 18 and two uh, to begin the year. Then he comes back and they're even a little bit better. I think at his best when he's truly healthy, Thompson is, is a good defender and one of the better ones that the Warriors have. I think it was clear in game one that maybe he's not all the way back. I think it is important to have him there though. Um, Draymond green. Um, he's very, very good defensively still. Um, I have a note here. He's allowed just 0.48 points per possession on isolations. Number one among all players who have at least 20 ISOs, um, in the playoffs. So that's something that they're going to lean on a lot. I think the Celtics go to that, uh, quite a bit so he can do that. But Draymond Green was horrible shooting in game one, two for 12 from the field, 0 for 4 from three. He was one of the only players that Boston wasn't going to guard uh, for three, and the Celtics have the best three-point defense in the NBA, including in the playoffs. So maybe that's a part of it too, playing three-point defense, is you pick your spots. You find the guy that's really not going to hit shots, and you just leave him wide open. And, and the guys that the Warriors needed to make those shots when they were open, they could not make. And, uh, you know, I, I've been very high on the Celtics and their defense. Um, but the Warriors do need to make a lot more shots. Uh, they did not shoot well, especially uh, in that fourth quarter, obviously. Um, and they missed some open shots. Uh, but I still stand by that point that the Celtics defense is so good that, you know, I, I – I expect them to keep every game close. And, you know, we didn't really see that in the Eastern Conference Finals. It seemed like there was a lot of um, blowouts in each game. But um, just based on their defense, do expect uh, games to be close. So um, hopefully the Warriors make some shots and we get a good series here. But uh, yeah, it should be an interesting one. Yeah, I was just going to add, looking at the, um, the Warriors – you know, you've got guys like Draymond Green, Jordan Poole, Kevin Looney, who are putting up, you know, they're in the game for 25, 25, 38 minutes and only giving you four points, four points, nine points. Like, you got to make more for your time, I guess. And that maybe that's just an attribute to Celtics defense. They're locking down these guys and they understand who's on their game. And, you know, they like you said, don't put as much defense, defensive pressure on guys like Draymond who haven't been shooting the ball um, as effectively, but it's like, you know, you've got guys in the game for so long and it just seems like they're not doing what needs to be done, which again could just be um, the Celtics defense doing what they need to be done. But, um, you know, it was also cool uh, or, you know, same situation. You've got a guy like for the Celtics, Grant Williams, who, you know, gives you 16 minutes and zero points. It's like, you know, you've got these guys who are playing decent minutes and just aren't producing. So it's like, okay, now what, you know? So I think it's just both these teams figuring out how to move forward with these guys. Maybe, you know, it's off games, that's basketball, that's sports. That's how, you know, everyone has an off game, you know, it's the first round of the playoffs or it's the first game, you know, that's, huge stakes. Um, so yeah, I think moving forward, this is going to be a good series. Um, if the Celtics keep up this, you know, 
their defensive pressure, um, lock down the Warriors. We'll see what happens. I think this could really go either way. Did you guys catch late in game one when when Curry took the bench? Um, Draymond fouled out. Steph Curry had three fouls. There was a lot of criticism, at least that I saw after the game, of, of their head coach Steve Kerr and pulling uh, Curry there for a little bit. Um, do you guys have any like thoughts about the way Golden State makes substitutions, especially late in games? Because that did seem like kind of a, a strange move to make, especially at that that time in the game. Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna maybe per se criticize Golden State for what they take out of their moves, but I think just when Steph Curry is on the court, that's a whole other part of the Celtics defense they have to worry about. You know what I mean? Like they they know what he does, they know what he can do, and they know what he probably will do. So when he's off, they can immediately focus on the other two scores on the court. And then it's just a whole like kind of slow transition of being able to go from defense to offense and kind of really playing the, their best basketball. They could probably play with Seth Curry's off. And when it's in the final minutes of the game like that, yeah, I'd probably shoot over the Warriors. By the time uh, we're on the air for next week's show, we'll be four games into this series, the next game um, is Sunday night in Golden State for game two. Um, I don't think the series will be over when we talk next unless it's a sweep for Boston. Uh, so how do, how do you see this playing out? Because even if even if Golden State takes game two, Boston is still in terrific shape uh, because if they win both games in Boston at 3-1, uh, we've seen that comeback before like that, but it's not um, impossible uh, to happen. So um, how do you guys see this playing out? Um, yeah, before before the series started, I said Warriors and six. Um, right now, I think the Warriors. I think I think they'll win tomorrow night. I think they'll go into Boston, and I do think that they'll take one of them. So I think I could maybe see it going into seven games now. I think just I really didn't expect Boston to go into Golden State and win Game One. So I think that we're gonna have a big deep series here. And I think it's just going to ultimately come down to the fourth quarter of what team would be able to stop or score. And that's what happened in the Eastern Conference Finals, right? It was that the Celtics stole a game in Miami to start, and then Miami took a game back, and then ultimately the series ends up going seven. Uh, so that that has happened before. And then maybe the last thing I would ask is, is Jason Tatum really did not play well. He had 12 points, went three for 17 from the field, and his team still, still scores 120 points and wins the game, including a 40-point fourth quarter to close it. So do, do you see it maybe where Tatum doesn't have to be a big factor in this series to, for them to do well, or maybe they'll just be even better when he comes back, or do they really need him to, to play a good long series? I would say that they definitely need Tatum to win. I just think that – I don't know. This game one to me just seemed a little bit odd. It seemed a little bit unordinary, just the way that, the way that it ended, the way that it flipped so fast. I felt like – was just not normal. So I, I really want to see in game two how the Warriors come out and how the Celtics come out and how Jason Tatum affects with the Celtics play. I think from there, we will be able to kind of dictate how the rest of the series will go in uh, some way, shape, or form. I also think that the uh, the bench players for the Celtics had a, a crazy um, – and the, the, the bench and the role players uh, had a crazy night um, and that kind of made up for, for Jason Tatum's lack of offensive performance. Um, so something's got to give either, either for the 
Celtics to win, either Jason Tatum needs to play a lot better offensively. Um, granted, he had, I think, 12 or 13 assists that game, so it's not like he didn't do anything. But shooting-wise, they, they expect him to have around 20, 22 a game for sure, uh, especially in the biggest moments. And um, Or the bench players or, and the role players are going to have to go off like they did in the amount um, – that they did like Derek, like Derek White. No one expected Derek White to, uh, you know, hit every shot is what it felt like in the fourth quarter. So um, who knows, but something's got to give if the Celtics are going to win. It will be a very interesting series to watch. And I, I think it's good that it wasn't like a rollover win for Golden State. They were heavily favored in, in the first game. And I think even in the series. So I think we're looking at one that could go long. We're a little bit short on time for the rest of the show, but we did promise some hockey talk. Uh, the Avalanche are up two games to none on the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, my only note on that is Connor McDavid, who is probably the biggest star in the NHL since coming into the league. Uh, he's been, I think, since 2016. He's only won one playoff series going into this year. He gets all the way to the Western Conference Finals, but they're up against really uh, an, an avalanche in Colorado, uh, a team that made some additions at the trade deadline. They're a very complete team. They have good goaltending, really the only, I think, team in the Western Conference that that puts uh, threat into anyone in the East. So it looks like the Oilers are a little outmatched there. Um, <clears throat> and then on the Eastern Conference side, the, the New York Rangers, who had come off back-to-back game seven wins, they beat uh, the Carolina Hurricanes in their previous series to advance, and they're going up against the back-to-back defending champs. The Tampa Bay Lightning and the Rangers have taken both games of the series at home. They're up two games to none, and in their game to win over the Lightning on uh, Friday night, they broke a really long streak. The Lightning in the playoffs had, um, following a loss, 18 times in a row, they came back to win the following game. So that streak was broken. They have been beaten back-to-back times for the first time in uh, a few years. The Lightning are trying to chase uh, the Islanders that won four uh, titles in a row as as far as consecutive playoff series wins. Um, But the the Lightning are going to have to win a game on the road eventually to win this series. But the Rangers have been unbeatable at home. Um, What do you guys think of this one? I think it's – it's pretty crazy because I, I didn't – after eight days off, I really didn't expect Lightning to come out very sharp. You know what I mean? You can't – I mean, that's very irregular, especially in a playoff like, like this. I think last night's game, I didn't think that the Lightning per se played bad, but, I mean, the Rangers goalie stepped up. I think he had nearly like 30 saves, 25, 30 saves, and, and there was a couple saves that would usually be goals that were this really, you know, huge and at big points in the game, and I think – that ultimately was like kind of the, the decision point. So it was a three-two game. You know, the Lightning had a late game empty, um, empty net goal from like so that the man up. And I don't know. It's interesting to see how it play out. But I think the Lightning will come out strong. And I think um, the, the, they'll go out here and win Game Three for sure. It has been an odd road for the Lightning in this year's playoffs. They went seven games. Uh, beating the Maple Leafs in in the opening round. And that was a game where the Lightning lost 5 nothing on the road in game one. Again, coming off another kind of period of, of rest after the regular season. Uh, the Lightning coming off, I think they had nine days rest coming into the series uh, against the Rangers, and they kind of came out flat in game one. They lost game two as well. It seems like Shesterkin, the goaltender for the Rangers, is, is coming back to kind of his Vesna form at least if he does win the trophy this year and an, even an MVP candidate so 
<clears throat> I think the Lightning finally may have met their match. We will see. Um, Vasilevsky has not played particularly well, but at the same time, the defense has has kept the puck, uh, has not been able to clear it from the defensive zone very well at all. I know there was a video of the, the Rangers, the kid line that was in the offensive zone for like two consecutive minutes. You're not going to win a series playing like that. Um, if they don't, I mean, obviously they have to win both games in Emily and Tampa to give themselves a chance. And I, I don't know if it's enough. This is a Rangers team that I think they might smell blood in the water. They're really talented. This was a rebuild ahead of schedule, but they've got a lot of energy going uh, in their favor. And so that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. That one probably will not be over by the time we speak next, uh, but we will see. And for the first time, we are playing the show out with some music. Star Wars month was a month ago. Uh, there's the Obi-Wan Kenobi show out right now that uh, a lot of people are talking about. And this is, uh, I've been wanting to put this on for a while. If you're not familiar, this is the uh, the Yubna, the Ewok celebration music from the original version of Return of the Jedi after uh, they defeated the Empire. And I think it's symbolic for what we do on this show because it's another successful week of producing the best sports talk radio you'll hear all week. Jackson, this is the first time you've heard this music. I've been keeping it from you on purpose because I want to get your live reaction. Have we found a winner here? I can't hear it. You can't hear it? Can anyone hear it? No? No. (laughs) I'll add it in post. I'll add it in post. You will hear it. You will hear this music. I act really surprised now. Yeah, all right. So, yeah, there we go. We got the uh, the live reaction. So I will add it in post. But uh, anyway, this has been William Haynes, my co-host, Jackson Bakich, Amanda Golson on panel, as well as Ethan Salzberg. Uh, signing off until next week. Hopefully the Knowles can get a win on Saturday against the Auburn Tigers and maybe get out of that regional all together. So until next week, this has been Tomahawk Talk. You're listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.